We're continuing our series on uh, what on earth is the vineyard and how do we play our full part in it? What does it mean to be part of it? Um, last week I told you about John Wimber and uh, his story. Um, the, I gave you a brief history. I wonder if any of you managed to have time to read or listen to, watch or listen to the I'm a Fool for Christ video. Did anybody manage to do that this week? A couple of people. It's still there. The, the web, I, tweet, I um, tweeted and put on Facebook the links to that. Um, if you get a chance, it's just so worth a watch. He's funny, he's engaging, and he tells his story about how he got converted, how the church got started. It's just really good context. Um, anyway, I gave you that sort of history last week, and, and I told you a little bit about how Wimber um, came over from California and how at the start of the vineyard movement, his teaching, his particular teaching and the way that he um, taught the church on the Holy Spirit and on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and God's power and how it moves today, it influenced many, many people around the world, so many. I mean, he spoke at numerous conferences, including plenty of conferences at the UK, in the UK back in the 80s. I mean, conferences which impacted so many of our existing church leaders, including, for example, uh, Justin Welby, who is now the Archbishop of Canterbury. You know, went along to one of the, the vineyard conferences, was involved in Holy Trinity Church um, back in the 80s whilst working in the city. Anyway, while those conferences were going on, a number of Anglicans were sort of connecting with Wimber and connecting with the movement to such an extent that God spoke to them really clearly about going back to California, about leaving the Church of England and going back to California to intern and to train with Wimber in order to come back and plant vineyard churches. And one such couple were John and Ellie Mumford. Now, if you were here uh, January last year, you know that they came and they spoke to us here. Um, many of you uh, may have heard them or have uh, heard them speak in the past. And John and Ellie were the first kind of couple, one of the, one of the main key couples who went over to the States, who trained with John Wimber, and then after a couple of years of input and training, came back to the UK and planted a vineyard church here in the UK. And everyone wondered if it would, if it would cross the Atlantic, as it were, if, if, if the culture of a vineyard church would work in the UK. And uh, rather than tell you that story, I'm going to let John and Ellie tell you that story themselves. As I just show you another couple of minutes uh, clip, if you can run the uh, beginnings of the movement clip, guys, that would be great. Here's John and Ellie just telling you a little bit about how the vineyard in the UK got started. The thing that riveted me was here was a group of very ordinary people who were worshipping God with a passion and an engagement that I found very, very attractive. And, and also they were living out their faith in a way that was extremely natural and normal and yet highly spiritual. It never occurred to us that we were going to join the vineyard. We were perfectly happy doing what we were doing elsewhere. But increasingly, God made it clear to us that we were to be part of this. We just felt somebody needs to do this in the UK. There's room for these sorts of churches in the UK. And that's really what got us excited. We were invited by John Wimber, who was then leading the vineyard in Anaheim in California, to go over and visit and spend some time there and training. Over three years, we had 33 remarkable instances in which God had spoken to us. Words of knowledge, um, verses from the scriptures, prophecy, friends, total strangers. And I started to write these things down. We went to John Wimber and we said, this is our plan. This is what we think God has said. And he said to us, you have more guidance for what you're planning to do in England than for anything we have ever done here. And then in uh, June of 1987, they laid hands on us and sent us back to the UK to plant what was the first vineyard in Europe. And we arrived, just the four of us, John and me, two small boys, an Omnicord. We had a huge dream. We had enough money for a month. But we just started to do what we'd learned to do in our own front room. A small group, lots of worship, eating together, sharing our lives, doing the things that now are so familiar to us in small groups. But in those days, it was all very unusual, and people began to come. Within a few months, John and Debbie Wright, who were also in California, they came back to the UK and joined us. And then very shortly afterwards, Rick and Lulu Williams started the Riverside Vineyard, and Chris and Phyllis Lane started the St Albans Vineyard. And those were the early pioneering vineyards here in the UK. And that's just a little bit of John and Ellie's story about starting the Vineyard Church in South West London. And um, they met in Putney for years. 
And uh, Hugh and Ginny Cryer, who started this church, Winchester Vineyard, went and joined John and Ellie back in the late 80s. Spent four or five years, five or six years in London, and being part of the church there, leading small groups, learning to lead, before being released themselves to make the journey down to Winchester in 1994. And one, two of you came with them to start this church. So if you like, we're a second generation UK Vineyard Church. Um, in spiritual terms, Hugh and Ginny are the founding pastors of this church. John and Ellie there are our spiritual grandparents. I suppose that makes Wimber our spiritual great-grandpa. <laughs> and um, can you spot the other the PowerPoint for me, guys? Um, and uh, John and Ellie have been leading the movement, leading that church and leading the movement for, for the best part of uh, 25 years now. And in fact, later this year, they're handing over to John and Debbie Wright, this couple on the on the bottom left, who are, who are currently leading the vineyard in Trent, Nottingham, Trent Vineyard. And uh, in September this year, they will, uh, John and Debbie will take over, and John and Ellie will continue to have a role, which they're doing internationally, um, just kind of overseeing, training, and helping uh, vineyards, uh, vineyard regions, international regions, as they emerge, as churches get planted. So that's just a little bit more of our history. And last week, um, if you remember, I also introduced you to this guy, the vineyard person. Um, which is uh, as, uh, just a simple way to remember what our family history is as a movement. Some of the values and things that have really um, directed us as we move ahead. It's, it's, it's not meant to be um, very deep, but it is just a simple way of expressing uh, who the vineyard is, what we are. And uh, we looked last week at the foundations of any local vineyard church. I spoke to you about Jesus being the head, about the Bible Um, being our foundation stone, the authoritative word of God. And then I spent a bit of time talking about the kingdom of God, the lens through which we see the Bible, the lens through which we interpret and understand it. And in fact, it was Wimber who was probably the first church leader to link the kingdom theology that we talked about last week with the Pentecostal experience of encountering the presence of God, which people had experienced right through the 20th century. It was Wimber who was the guy who basically looked at the the theology of the kingdom and said, I think this is the best way to explain this. And he married the two together. Before that, some people, not everybody, but some people had some real questions about what was going on with the Pentecostal charismatic experience, experiencing God's presence, um, such that some churches, because of the way that they sort of read the Bible, felt excluded from that. Wimber was the first person who came and said, actually, hang on a minute. This explains that, and therefore everybody can can get involved. Everybody can partake. It's not often talked about, but that's actually something he did for the the church worldwide, Um, certainly in the West anyway, which is amazing. And that understanding of the kingdom that I talked about last week, it it really does underpin everything we do. So at the risk of laboring point, I just want to show you one more video. It's not watching telly this morning, isn't it? I just want it's very short, it's just over a minute. This is Phil Strout, who's the current national director of the USA uh, Vineyard Movement. And he's just explaining again, just by way of recapping from last week, what that kingdom theology understanding, what it is and what it really means. So just play that one, guys. Thank you. Let me tell you one of our core values, and that is the theology and the practice of the kingdom of God. It is the reality that Jesus Christ, in his coming, inaugurated the kingdom of God. In his second coming, he will consummate the kingdom of God. We live in the tension of the already and the not yet. That's this. Everything else from the vineyard basically flows from this belief. This belief that God, God has intervened. God has kept his promise. There's a great way to talk about the kingdom of God. Let me give you a simple phrase. God has kept his promise. What he said he would do in Genesis 3.15, that he would intervene on behalf of the human race, he has done. He did it in sending his son. And Jesus, if I can give you a word picture coming from Gordon Fee, Jesus drives a flag onto the earth and he says, this belongs to me. And yet, wrapping that all up, is going to happen at the second coming of Christ. So, everything we believe, everything that we that we take away from that, the kingdom of God, that's where we start. The, the theology and the practice of the kingdom of God is where we where we start in the vineyard. As if to underline and just to labour a point, everything else that we do comes out of this understanding of the kingdom of God, and that's the foundation on which the vineyard is stands. 
Um, and today, I want to move up from the foundation. I want to look at our legs. Now, um, it's not a good idea to spend time looking at someone's legs too much, I don't think. But in this case, I think we're okay. And what I want to talk about today are the legs of worship and compassion, um, which kind of support the body that is the church here. And these are key to, to what we're about. And I, this image of, of them as legs really communicates very clearly and well, I think, just how this thing is supposed to function. Because in order for a body to work well, the legs need to be equal length, equal length and equal strength. They're of equal importance. And you might think when you come to church, uh, if you just come into our church, you might think that um, worship is a bigger leg than compassion. You might think, well, they spend half an hour every Sunday worshipping and they have a whole band and that's what we all do. And certainly it's very visible. It's what we gather for on a Sunday. But compassion and the way that we express the love of God to those in in and around our community, those who are in need, those that we come into contact with, those in the wider world, it's at at least of equal importance here. And in fact, as we'll just understand this morning, the two are connected and they almost validate each other. They're both, essentially, actually, they're both part of worship. So I just want to take a few minutes to look at that this morning and then I'm going to hand over to Tim and Pippa who are going to tell us a little bit about Karis Kids and how this works out, how compassion works out practically. But looking at worship first, there's a scripture that I am... There's a verse from the Bible there that I've put on your sheet. Um, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. And this is in Luke, but this is Jesus quoting, of course, the law right back from Genesis. Worship, loving God, is our highest priority. It's what we are made for. I talked about this a few weeks ago. We are, we are all made to worship and we will worship something. And as believers in Jesus, our desire is to worship God with our whole being. In the vineyard, we want Jesus to be at the centre as our Lord and Saviour. And we want to see spirit-enabled worship in a style that's intimate and dynamic and culture-current and, and life-changing. But as you know, worship is more than just singing songs. When we reduce worship just down to sort of the thing that we do on a Sunday morning, that's, we're just really scratching the surface. By worship, we mean living lives that are submitted to and serving God and the purposes of him. Living in a way that will bring glory to him. And so our worship and the way that we worship God is visible in our daily lives. You might think that's a bit weird. I don't walk around like this in my daily life. Unless maybe you go to a football match or something or a gig. But the way that we deal with other people is our worship to God. Friends, neighbours, the way we deal with our colleagues or our clients or our patients or the pupils in our class or our boss or our husband or wife. The way we speak to our children, the way we deal with our parents, all of that is worship. The way we handle our money how we behave sexually, how we relax and party, how we do our jobs, the language that comes out of our mouths, all of that is our worship. Worship is also what's happening when we pray and we meditate on the Bible and when we pray for one another and when we meet together for food and when we heal the sick and cast out demons and feed the poor and care for the bereaved and look after the immigrants. Worship is a whole of life deal. It's a whole of life deal. I hope you can already see why those two legs of worship and compassion are so important together. And worship also has something to do with music. And as a vineyard movement, we've been known for for some of the worship music that we've uh, produced, some of our contemporary music. But it's, it's it's not even about the style as much as it's about the values. See, our worship, I think, is one of our key distinctives. It always has been. And a key to how worship has developed in the vineyard and in this church has been those values that we hold very dear and precious. Now, styles change and songs change. You know, this morning we're worshipping with a a drum machine and we're playing disco music. Fantastic. I love it. But, you know, that might change. The songs might change. The trends might change. But the values which we hold dear in worship have always stayed and underpinned what we do. We don't often speak about them because values by nature don't get spoken about very much, but they do influence and underpin everything we do. And so, let me just pop the, uh, oh, there we go. 
Um, and so I've put them on your sheet as well. Um, maybe you've really enjoyed the worship here. Maybe you weren't quite sure why it is that you really enjoyed the worship here. Or what it is that you appreciated about it. But these values um, underpin our sort of approach to worship. They actually have underpin our approach to the whole of life. And there's just four of them, and I'm not going to spend too long, but one of them is, the first one is intimacy. Intimacy. I heard somebody talk about intimacy once, a bit like this. If you say the words, into me, see. The intimacy means allowing somebody to see in. Into me, see. Did you get I thought that was quite clever. Back in the old days of the vineyard, uh, Carol Wimber and John Wimber that I was telling you about last week, they had a small group. And the small group was, consisted of a bunch of leaders that were, to be honest, quite burnt out and sort of pretty fed up of doing church. Um, and as they sat and they just sang some simple songs, they found that something happened as they sang the songs whose words were directed towards God. This is what Carol Wimber said about it. She said it was during the songs with words addressed directly to God that we experienced the more profound sense of his presence. And when we gave him worship as a gift, not as the warm-up for the teaching, but as an end in itself, then an interesting thing happened. God brought his presence and he ministered to us. That's kind of where the vineyard started. And it's true that music, whatever kind of music, helps us to unlock our emotion and helps us to express our love for God. Ultimately, it's the heart behind that that's most important. And so we do make a point of singing songs to God, not just about him. Can you imagine if I, as you know, Joe, my wife, I love her very much. But can you imagine if all I ever did was tell everybody else about how much I loved her? If I stood here and told you how amazing she was, and every day I went around saying what a fantastic person she was, but I never actually turned to her and just spoke those words, I love you. See, intimacy requires that kind of closeness. And um, intimacy probably is probably the most important of all of these values. Are we prepared to get intimate with God? Do we come to church on Sunday ready to get close, ready to come in close to him? Because that's what we're interested in. Another of our values is accessibility. And we try and lead worship in a way that's enabling everyone to engage. Simple things like, and we don't always get it right, by the way, but trying to get the words on the screen, you know, and music which helps us to, to sound good. And, and, and you know, having a, a team that, that, um, that can give us a strong lead so that we feel safe. You know, choosing songs that aren't too high or too low, you know, not too fast, not too complicated. You know, our band are not performers. They're not here to sing for us. They're here to lead us. And they do a fantastic, all of our bands do a fantastic job at that. And we're so grateful to you guys. It can be so easy to become a spectator in worship. You know, and I, and I, I love great music. I love great gigs. Went to a fantastic gig the other week. Um, Paul, Simon and Sting it was amazing. Love it. Um, but, but that's not what church is for. And the challenge for us is to keep our worship contemporary and interesting and inspiring, but, but also accessible. Because every week people come into our church, you're one of them today, who are just in some way searching for Jesus. In some way trying to connect with God, trying to meet with God. And whether they know it or not, the worship is always something that will help people connect with God. So that's why we try and make it accessible. Integrity is another value of ours. In a WYSIWYG I've put there, what you see is what you get. And so when life is hard, and we do have to make an effort to sing the truth about God, sometimes that's reflected in our worship, that we're actually making choices to believe the truth even though we don't feel it. You know, that we're singing songs at church that we'd quite happily sing on our way home in the car. If we're raising hands or kneeling in Church, are we doing that at home or are we just doing that in church? Are we happy to worship in a way that we would also worship if nobody was watching? And that includes those of us who are leading. Not, they're not putting on some kind of show or not kind of some act. This is, who, this is who I am. This is who I am, guys. You probably, if you know me, you'll know me well enough to know that I don't change when I get up to speak or lead worship on a Sunday. I don't put on some sort of holy kind of persona. I think my wife sometimes wishes I put on a tie, but that's a different, that's a, that's a different issue. Um, you know, who we are is, is who we are. And if we come to church on Sunday 
and we worship God and then we go home and speak unkindly to our partner or our kids, well, that's challenging. We're not expecting perfection, but we are trying to live this thing out. This isn't just something we do on Sunday and then it's divorced from the rest of the week. And obviously that's related to compassion, which I'll come back to in a minute. But just the last value is expectation, kingdom expectation. You know, and we do expect God to come. We don't demand it. And he's worthy of our worship anyway, whether or not he chooses to come and be with us. It's not a deciding factor on whether we will come to worship him today. But we do know that the way God works is he loves to come and be with his people. And so we expect that he would and we plan that he might. There's a verse in the message, that, well, this is the message version of that famous verse. When two, if two or three of you are together because of me, you can be sure I'll be there. And so when our guys are putting their sets together, they're aware of that and they're preparing for that. Maybe we'll go off piste. Maybe we'll see what the Holy Spirit wants to do. You know, last week, um, is Claire Gregory here today? No, she came and she spoke last week and she said that she'd come to church with a sciatica problem and during the worship, God had healed her. She hadn't even come forward to get prayed for. Well, wasn't that wonderful? I mean, that's what happens when we come to worship God. And so if this is all of, uh, this is all of our one leg... What about our other leg? What about this leg of compassion? You see, it says in the Bible, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Compassion, in terms of dictionary definition, means a sympathetic feeling or a concern of the sufferings or misfortunes of others. But actually, I think in God's kingdom, it goes further than that. Because we can all feel sorry for someone. We can all feel sorry for something, but that isn't compassion. Compassion is when we actually do something about what we're feeling. It's when our feelings lead to actions. You know, and Jesus, when we read the stories about what Jesus did, usually there were two motivating factors for him to do anything. One of them was, I do this because this is what the Father's telling me to do. It's obedience. And the other motivating factor for Jesus is, he saw them, he had compassion. And he acted. Sometimes we don't need a word from God because we just feel something. And we know that's, that's the Holy Spirit inside us. Saying, you have to do something about this. And that comes, by the way, as a result of worship. So when we worship, it leads us into the presence of Jesus. And then he, by his Holy Spirit, brings compassion on us. Which is not just a feeling, but a compulsion. Something that goes beyond emotion. When the Holy Spirit comes in our worship times, he deposits compassion in our hearts. In the church, we express his heart of mercy, his demand for justice in our broken world. That's why so much of the social justice work in this country is basically done by the church. You know, um, we, not all of it, but it comes, a lot of this, a lot of this comes from the church. It's been a really important part important part of who we are as a church movement let's be honest we've got a fair way to go a long way to go before we catch up with some of the we'd say the catholics and salvation army but we do expect the lord to put compassion in our core as a church and we do expect to give our time and our energy and our money towards expressing that in a way that flows out from ourselves and out from our community and into the lives of others who need to feel the touch of Jesus in one way or another. Last week, for example, I read you some stories from Healing on the Streets team. Uh, fantastic news. Fantastic news. Every week, God doing things on the streets. Brilliant. I heard yesterday that there are a group of um, druids who are out in the city centre Having a go, uh, having a pop and praying against the healing on the streets teams because we've become so effective there that the opposition's coming. Isn't that amazing? Wonderful. Bring it on, God. That's what I say. Um, getting out there is so much part of what we do. Some of it's very visible. You know, you can pick up one of these, a storehouse bag, food store bag, at the back of church, and you take it home and fill it with food, and it will come back and get given to somebody. So that's a way that everybody can get involved. Some of our compassion is very visible. Some of it's hidden. Equally of value to God, if not more of value to God, 
you know, and just to say this, guys, you as a church are incredibly generous people, both in your finances and in your heart and your time and energy. This is a wonderful place to be. Listen to these stats. I went last night, I had the privilege of going to the Street Pastors annual dinner last night. Street Pastors in Winchester, which Mark here coordinates, doing a fantastic job. Um, I just, I got these stats, couldn't actually read them in the book, so I had to blow them up a bit because they're a bit small. But um, in 2014, okay, Street Pastors basically gave 2,700 hours in Winchester, um, over 2014. Um, this is what they gave out. This is just the sort of report. They gave out 374 pairs of flip-flops, 253 bottles of water, 461 hot chocolates or soups, 4,000 lollies, 43 blankets, 82 care cards, and 14 uh, little books about what the kingdom of God is about. I mean, isn't that an amazing stat? All those people they touched on. I've also got the stats here for how many drunk people, how many people they calmed down, how many people who were injured, how many homeless people they met, 500-odd homeless people or encounters, you know, 230 drunk people that they helped. I mean, all of that stuff, that's an amazing, amazing thing. Caris Kids, you're going to hear about in just a few minutes. Just one of the places where, one of the, one of the organisations where individual members of this church are engaged in compassionate, wonderful, compassionate activities in the name of Jesus. Some of our compassion is, as I said, visible and some of it's less visible. It's not sexy, it's not glamorous, but it is an incredible investment in the kingdom of God. Now, I was doing a Freedom in Christ with the youth on Friday night, and it was the last one. And on the video, the, the guys who were doing the video quoted Bono. Now, as you know, I don't need any excuse to quote Bono. Um, so I thought, oh, that's good. That really fits. This is what he said. They said Bono said this uh, at the Live 8 concert at the G8 Summit 2005. He says, so this is our moment. This is our time. This is our chance to stand up for what's right. We're not looking for charity. We're looking for justice. We can't fix every problem, but the ones we can, we must. I thought that's a fantastic rallying call. And the Bible is very clear on God's heart for the poor. And while he loves to meet with us in worship, his expectation is that the natural outflow of God's people meeting with him will be out towards those in need. Alan Scott from Causeway Coast Vineyard put up quite a challenging tweet this week. I think I've written it on your... Uh, on your um, sheet, it says, we've spent so long inviting God to show up in our services that we've missed his invitation to show up in our cities. That's challenging. I'll read you something he wrote. He said this, our level of effectiveness dramatically increases when we connect it to mission rather than renewal meetings. Renewal meetings are good as long as they renew us for mission. The power is given to the church for the cities. It wasn't given so we could have better meetings or greater experiences. It was given to change the community, the whole community. It's no mistake that worship and compassion are the two legs that obviously go step by step, side by side together as part of what God's called us to do. And just before we finish, and I'll hand over to Simon Pippa, you know, I could spend ages looking at a whole number of parts of the Bible to prove this to you. I won't, but I flagged up two on your sheet from the Old Testament, where God is just saying, do you know what? Your worship is not really valid unless justice and righteousness are also happening. This is in Amos. I hate your religious festivals. Don't bring that stuff to me. I have no regard for them. Your assemblies are a stench to me, God says. And then verse 24, uh, 23 and 24, away with the noise of your songs. I'm not listening anymore. But let justice roll on like a river. And in this particular case, the Lord is, is, is really disappointed and fed up with his people because they're not doing, they're not looking after the poor. They're not taking care of righteousness and justice. There's a slightly more positive one in Isaiah 58, which is where he says, the kind of fast I'm after is to break the chains of injustice and get rid of exploitation and share your food with the hungry and put clothes on the starving. And then it comes down to the bottom. Do this. And the lights will turn on and your lives will turn around. Your righteousness will pave your way and the God of glory will secure your passage. And then when you pray, God will answer. So in a sense, God's saying, if you're looking after the poor, then I will answer your prayers. You could argue that that's how you could interpret that.
And there's more there in, in um, which I don't have time to look at, but in, in the Gospels, Jesus, look at the, the story of Lazarus and the sheep and the goats. Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers, you do for me. So if worship is just simply something that we do for half an hour on a Sunday, if it's our way of reconnecting with God and getting our own needs met, well, you know, he's, he's, he's gracious and I'm sure that will happen. But over time, if we don't have that natural outflow, then our worship will start to lack authenticity. Unless we're living things out, unless we're living this thing out through our time and energy and money, compassion is the natural outflow of worship, of our encounters with God. If we don't actually take our God's presence out with us somewhere, I have this feeling that we'll sort of overindulge in a way that would be unhealthy and unhelpful. You may have heard me talk about this before, but what goes on? Oh, I love that. Have you seen that? Oh, you can't really see it from there. It says you have a leg length discrepancy. See, I don't want this to be a church where we've got unequal legs. You see what I'm saying? Worship and compassion needs to be equal. What go, what's going on here? It's something that happens anyway in worship. It's a cycle of revelation and response. We come to God, we're feeling fed up, we don't know where we are this morning. We start to sing the words of the songs. The truth starts to impact on our hearts again. We start to respond. As we respond, more revelation comes. As we respond, more revelation comes. As we worship him, our response becomes a life response. And that's why worship and compassion go hand in hand or leg, leg in leg together. See, worship is the place where we re-energize. Maybe you've been, so, you're, maybe you're one of these people who's so compassionate, you're so affected by the needs of others that you find yourself just giving all of the time of your time and energy and money to other people and you run out of just energy for it. Worship is the place to come back to. Because as you, as you worship God, more revelation will come. And you'll be restored. It's very easy to get cynical about compassion, isn't it? Very easy to get cynical about charity. Oh, I'm, I'm giving more, I'm doing more than anybody else. Does anybody else care around here? It's only as we worship God that his revelation sorts that out for us. And there's peace and security in knowing that the compassion that we will get involved in is the one that God is directing us to. Do you ever get charity letters through your door? I, mean, I get them all the time. And honestly, I have no problem just bending them. And that's because, not because I'm a cruel, heartless man. I don't think I am anyway. Not last time I checked. But because, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to function on a needs base. But every now and then I read them, I think, okay, God, you want me to do something about this. But because I know that when I'm spending time with God and I'm open, he's going to show me where, where to invest my time and energy and money. I don't have to be going, oh, oh my gosh, so much need, so much need. You know, God's in charge. There's peace and security in that. There's peace and security. And so the synergy, when these two things are working together, is fantastic. Now that's me done, and I'm going to hand over to Tim and Pippa. We're just going to share with you a bit about Karis Kids, and then I'll just come back and we'll um, work out how we're going to do this offering together. Um, Tim and Pippa, please give them a round of applause and welcome. Hello, dear church family. Um, I'm going to start just by telling you a little bit about the history of Karis Kids and where we've got to. Then we're going to show you one more little film, which is, um, well, it'll speak for itself. And then Pippa's going to wind up. And we'd love you just to think in your hearts whether you would like to give something to uh, the children in Kampala. Tristan, can I have a, a slide or two, please? Can I have the, the um, pointy thing? Um, so, yeah, lovely. Karis Kids for Pip and I has very much come out of our experience, our history with the vineyard. Uh, I, Hungry for God, went off to California in 1984 and I, I went to a, a vineyard conference. And I'll remember to my dying day how I was impacted by the compassion that I was shown by the people I met and by God and by the intimate worship. I, I mean, I was just blown away by it and it changed me. And uh, we've been part of Vineyard ever since. And we were part of Rick and Lulu's church um, from the early 90s. 
And bit by bit, our experience has been that as we have experienced God in the amazing worship and uh, his love and compassion has touched our broken hearts and bit by bit healed us, it's changed us. And um, welling up in us, we had this thing going around our hearts, our minds. For God's sake, let's do something. You know, do something, Tim. For God's sake, do something. And this compassion began to well up something inside us. And we used to look at the walls and think, what should we do? And we went and had a look in the scriptures. And um, Tim Keller talks about the, the, the quartet of the poor that we see in the scriptures. And these are people who God has a special place for. People who are poor, whether they're materially poor or spiritually poor, emotionally poor, socially poor, whatever it is, the poor, the spiritually poor. And in particular, he cares about orphans and widows and refugees. And at that time, the um, HIV crisis uh, in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa was a big, big issue. And we realized that actually, uh, if, we, if we ministered into that situation and we sensed God's compassion leading us in that direction, we could actually help all these four groups of people with one hit. And so, um, Karis Kids was born. And actually, it was born upstairs room upstairs right here under Hugh and Ginny um, about eight, nine years ago. And uh, it always has been a win-win ministry. Pippa, myself, Edward, Kathy, we've been members of this church. And for those of you who give, give to this church, you might be interested to know that Ketra, who is um, the middle lady of these three, who's our team leader in uh, Uganda, her wage has mostly been paid for by this church ever since. So for those of you who give here, please be encouraged that some of your giving is really going straight down the arm of practical compassion to help very uh, vulnerable people in Kampala. Um, so out of this, uh, this verse in um, Isaiah, sorry, in Psalm uh, 68, God helped us develop a, a, a model of family to family to care for these, these needy people in the slums of Kampala. Um, and, and all along, I, I felt I just wanted to say that um, Karis Kids is not a, a parachurch organization. We're not so much a, a charity. We're very much a ministry of this local church. And we partner with another local church in Kampala called St. John's. Um, this is St. John's Kamwacha. And this is Stephen, who's the leader there. And through the ministry of this local church, that local church reaches out into its community with compassion to help the orphans who are in families in the slums. Um, and really, I, I just felt, I mean, it's amazing what Nigel has said this morning. Because that's been our experience, that through meeting with God, through the vineyard actually, God has placed in us, in our hearts, some compassion. And that compassion has said, God, we want to do something. And then Karis Kids has evolved. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey for us. Lastly, where have we got to? Um... I don't know if you can see some numbers, but out of our 500 or so Karis kids at the moment, we've got about 70 in secondary school and uh, numbers who are growing up through primary school. And I don't know if you're a parent, whether you've mentioned, uh, whether you've noticed that um, if you've got kids, they get bigger and they eat more and they cost more money. And so really where we're at today is to, to recognize that and to ask if some of you would consider helping towards the secondary school fees. And a friend of ours uh, called Adam has made a video, which we'd like to show you now, about um, secondary education. Now, this video is aimed for primary school kids, but you'll get the point. This is our cry. 
Hello. I want to tell you about some amazing children and a brilliant charity. Caris Kids is a charity that helps children and their families who live in some of the poorest parts of Kampala, the capital city of Uganda. Caris Kids was set up because there were so many orphaned children in Uganda. Most of them had lost their parents due to AIDS. Thankfully, there were loving Ugandan families living around these children who were willing to adopt them. Caris helps these families to afford things they normally wouldn't be able to manage. Things we take for granted, such as food, medical care, primary school costs, and places to put their belongings to keep them dry when the rains come and it floods. Caris does this by pairing each Ugandan family with one in Britain. They write to each other and support each other, and the British family gives some money each month to cover these costs. So now these children have two adopted families, one in Uganda and one in Britain. The lives of these slum children are very different from ours. For one thing, for many of them, their entire house may be smaller than your bedroom. They also don't have things at home that we take for granted, such as toilets, running water, or a cooker. But for all this, Caris kids are just like us. They enjoy chatting with friends, making up new games, and learning new things. We are fortunate to be able to go to school for free in Britain. The Ugandan government gives some support for primary schools, and Caris kids covers the costs of resources such as paper, pencils, books and uniform for our kids. Our children don't take this opportunity for granted. They are keen to work hard, learn and then hopefully get a job that will enable them to support themselves and their families in the future. The Ugandan government does not pay for secondary education. The students have to find the fees themselves. Unfortunately, Caris Kids can't currently afford to pay for its children to go on beyond primary school. Imagine getting to the end of year six and being told that your education is over. There's so much more to learn. This is where we need your help. We would love it if you could help to raise some money for one or more of our Caris Kids to go to secondary school. Any money you raise will be saved up to pay for the secondary school fees of one of our children. They will be able to finish primary school knowing that they can go on and continue their learning at secondary. For every £500 raised, a Caris kid can go to secondary school for an extra year. And for every year spent in education, the more likely he or she is to get a job, stay healthy and keep his or her family healthy. Can you help? Great. Well, we're really thankful that so many families here in Winvin are um, linked and supporting a Ugandan family in the slums of Kampala. And um, you've probably picked up from what Adam just said in that little film clip. The money that's given really does help cover the primary, because primary school is subsidized by the government there. But we're now at the stage where we've got lots of growing kids who are desperately wanting to continue their education. And we're trying to be prayerful and creative about how we can meet the needs of secondary and vocational training um, to, to really see some of our kids who've got great potential uh, become a little bit more trained, educated, get good jobs, and long-term become self-sustaining so we can get them eventually to help take care of their own families really to get, we're calling it really the exit strategy, the long-term exit strategy. And even more than academics, um, I would love to see some of these kids really being used for the kingdom. We see such spiritual potential. I asked some of the youth out there recently, what do you want to do when you're older? And they didn't just say, I wanted to be an engineer or a teacher. They said, I would like to serve God as an engineer, or I'd like to serve God as a teacher. And that to me really struck me that they, they're wanting to 
to do things which not only will serve their families long term, but will serve the kingdom. So please... Um, be prayerful with us about how we can, can meet this. These are just a few statistics about um, what secondary school education can help with. Every single year that a child is in secondary um, helps with 15 to 25% more earning potential for the future. They're twice as, uh, an educated girl is twice as likely more to have children who live past the age of five. It's quite shocking when you think about it three times less likely to catch HIV. Also, um, we've written be safer much of the time because the, the reality is these, are, are, these children are like treasures in darkness. It really is a dangerous, dark place that they live in. And if we can get them increasing time in school in a safe environment, there's less chance of them getting into trouble in the slums. That's particularly for the, the girls. Just to put this into context, um, two weeks ago, one of our 14-year-old Karis girls, not from Kamwachia, from another slum, was abducted from her home and raped and murdered. Um, that's the context. So, yeah, carrying on. Uh, so just very briefly to sum up, the cost of secondary is about four or five times more than primary, but there is no entry level giving. Do I point that way? Yeah. There's no entry level giving. If you can just give a pound, uh, you know, anything, um, as you, as you pray about what to give, it will all help. Um, one of the big decisions we've made as trustees this year, to really help free up some money and also to free up some time for our staff um, is to alternate when we have summer camp. Now, summer camp is something we do as a residential weeks camp the last few years for the youth, the 19, 19-year-olds of our Karis kids. They love it. So it's a big sacrifice to alternate the years. Um, but this year, we're going to do just a one-day camp um, and then the rest of the money that's raised that normally would pay for the camp, we're putting straight towards the education fund. So this will pay for secondary school fees and vocational training uh, for, for some of our teenagers over the next year or two. So it's a big decision, but um, we feel it's, it's such a priority to try and invest more in the education of our, our growing Karis youth. So thank you. That's it, really. Okay. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate that. In the past years, what we've done is we've done a day like this where we've given in towards the camp, the cost of the camp. And so the Caris trustees are saying, we're not doing camp, we're saving the money. We're just going to try and build a big pot for secondary education. And that's what the money's going to, um, as you've just been explained to. So this is how we're going to do this. Um, if you need one of these envelopes, um, if you're a taxpayer, even if you already gift aid to the church, we'd love you just to fill in one of these, then we know it's for you. Um, you can give today. And you can give through these envelopes into the office for the next couple of weeks. Um, so any cash that's given today, any of our offering that will go, will go for that. Band, why don't you come back and why don't you play something? Because I, I, you know, I want to do this, us to do this in the context of worship. Okay? We're not here to manipulate anybody. We're not here to hype anybody or stretch the emotions. That is the reality of what's going on. But it's up to us, each of us, to just ask the Lord. So maybe you're prepared, and you, you, you can, that's a decision you can make now, and you're prepared to give today, and that's fine. But if you're not, that's okay. Just, just take an envelope, ask the Lord. Um, you've got the next couple of weeks to, to, uh, to respond as well. Um, but we will do this in the context um, of our worship. So um, can you lead us? Is that all right? Have you got a song we can do? Why don't we stand together? Um, and just give it a minute or two, Eric, and then, and then the guys will pass around the, uh, the baskets. If you've got something to give um, today, uh, then that would be fantastic. Thank you. Um, while we're doing that, where are Tim and Pippo? Can a few of you just gather around these? Can we just pray for you? Is that all right? Why, doesn't just, why don't three or four of you guys just go and pray? Just gather around them. We bless you. Lord, we just lift these two up to you. And, and it's not just that we know it's not all about you guys, Tim and Pippa. We know there's a team working with you. We know you've got great trustees. We know you've got a whole team over in um, Uganda as well. But Lord, we just lift up this ministry and these children and these families to you now in Jesus' name.
and we lift Tim and Pippa up as the visionaries and the the founders of Carrie's Kids and we ask that you bless them in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, just come on them even now. We lift them to you. We lift them to you. And we lift this ministry to you. Yes, God. Um, when we were praying just before the service Pippa shared a picture with me that she felt that the Lord had given her this morning um, which was of here we were and all the children were, were, were down on the ground and the thing was in the picture we had to kneel in order to be down at their level and I thought that was really indicative of what the Lord was saying today because there's kneeling in humility and there's kneeling in worship And whatever we choose to give today and however we choose to respond to this, this is part of our worship to God. So, Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your presence here. We thank you for this opportunity to give. And now in the context of worship, we choose to give to you and to respond to this kingdom need. And we pray for all of these little ones, all of those 500 children, all the ones who are in year six and ready to go to secondary. Lord, we pray that somehow every single kid that needs to be in secondary school would be in secondary school. We pray that you'd release the money, release the finances. And Lord, where where we're to be the, the answer to that prayer ourselves, just speak to us. Make that very clear to us. Yeah, thank you, Lord. Let's worship. And Eric, let's um, pass the baskets around. Foremost bakers. Foremost Mold us, shape us to be like you. Move to action, full of mercy and compassion for us. Make us mold Oh, oh, oh. 